0: The book of Malachi, chapter 1, as the Hebrew Scriptures wind down, the majestic law of God, the, the, the mighty prophecies, the magnificent visions that we have seen throughout the Hebrew Scriptures all give way to markedly plain words. And that's what makes Malachi such an interesting and engaging book is the Lord isn't explaining things or expressing things in parables and visions and revelation he is just laying it out plain and simple language through his messenger malachi you know malachi means my messenger in chapter 1 verse 1 begins the oracle of the word of the lord to israel through malachi i have loved you says the lord but you say how have you loved us Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Now I know we talked about those verses Sunday morning. If you weren't here, you might want to go listen online because there's an entire expose of the book of Malachi and some explanation there that I think is important for understanding what's going on in the communication, in the dialogue of this book. You may recall, 47 of the 55 verses here are the Lord speaking directly to His people Israel. And within those, the Lord actually asks a question and then answers the question with the mindset of the people, answers what He knows they're thinking, and then responds to the answer. And He will do this, it's a pattern we see throughout the book of Malachi. God's got a burden for His people And in this straightforward, unmistakable language, he begins with two clear messages for Israel. Let me remind you from Sunday. The first message is, I have loved you. And it's in the perfect tense. So literally, you could say, he said, I have loved you. I do love you. I will love you. That's the love of God. Past, present, future, constant to enter into a relationship with God is to enter into a relationship that is always loving. Loving you in the past, even before you chose Him. Loving you now in the present, having chosen Him, even though we stumble and trip and mess up. And loving us in days to come because He has foreknown what is going to happen. His love is perfect. It is absolute. As we talked about Sunday, the love that God gave Israel was chosen before creation. That He elected Israel to be His people in the vast planning of all that He he thought out before the first words of creation, let there be light. He elected Israel. He voted them in. They would be His chosen people. And Paul writes, I remind you, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Where the church has gotten it wrong in the past is applying that verse to us. That's part of the problem with Calvinism, with with five-point Calvinism. And if you happen to be a five-point Calvinist or a two-and-a-half-point Calvinist or a three-point Calvinist, and I'm not going to argue over these things. But part of the problem is going to passages like Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 and, and immediately saying, well, that's the church. And we've been predestined. He said it right there. No, He predestined Israel. And God very clearly did that. We see in the Hebrew Scriptures, Paul very clearly is stating God predestined us, Israel, the, we Jewish people. And some would argue, yeah, but but Paul was a Christian. So if he says us, he could be talking about the church. Perhaps, except that as you know, down in verse 13, he says, in him, you also. Now he's talking to the church. Now he's talking to the Gentile, the non-Jew. The Jewish people predestined by the love of God to be a chosen people so that we could see when God chooses someone, that choice never ends. And should you choose God if you have chosen God? Guess what? He has chosen for you to choose Him because He knew you were going to choose Him before you did. (laughs) He foreknew. He foreknew your choice. And foreknowing your choice, He assured that it would follow through. Such is the grace of God. But there's a second plain message we didn't talk about on Sunday that I wanted to go back and look at before we go any further. And that is the message at the very end of verse 5, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Understanding God's loving choice of Israel, He revealed that longevity of His faithfulness to all mankind. And so Paul did write, In Him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed... You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. You see, the church was given the Holy Spirit of promise. Israel was not. They will. Israel will, as a nation, receive the outpouring of God's Holy Spirit when Jesus returns. We read that in Zechariah 14, 12, 13, and 14. But the church was given, is given, His spirit of promise. It's a promise to Christians. But he says this phrase, magnified beyond the borders of Israel. The word magnified there, gadol, is an interesting word. It literally means to grow up. Not that God needs to grow up. But that His name be growing beyond the borders of Israel. That His name be exalted. That His name be expanding. In other words, it was always God's intention from the beginning for His glory to grow like an ever-expanding light out beyond the borders of that dark place in Israel. And that's exactly what's happened. The great light came to the dark place in the Galilee. Zebulun, Naphtali, that region of the Galilee that was called a place of darkness. Matthew chapter 4 speaks of this. Jesus comes into the darkness and shines a great light. And that light expanded beyond the borders of Israel to reach the entire world with the message of the gospel. That understood... When we read his name be magnified beyond the border of Israel, I think we can apply that to ourselves that he is not limited to the confines of a nation. He is not limited to the confines of an organization. He is not limited to the confines of a single church. He's not limited to the confines of your life. You see, it's man who gets territorial. We're the ones who say this is... Us. We protect our land. We protect our lifestyle. We, we protect you know, our rights. And the simple humbling truth is we exist that God be magnified beyond our borders. Beyond the borders of this church and our lives. Beyond the borders of the islands. Beyond the borders of Washington State. Beyond the borders of America. That God be magnified. That's why we're here. It's why Israel was called. It is why we are called. And Paul said in Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work. Why? For His good pleasure. For His good pleasure. Now, with that in mind, understanding before we even get any further that our, our entire purpose in living is to magnify God, is to expand the name of Jesus beyond our borders, When we understand that, we come now to the priesthood. God turns to the priesthood whose primary role was to glorify, magnify, and expand the knowledge of God. That's why the Levites were called. And I want to remind you and have you think this through as we go through the study tonight, that Peter said we are a chosen race, we are a royal priesthood. A holy nation... And He is talking to Gentiles. A people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. We are a royal priesthood. As Brian is fond of saying, saints of the royal priesthood. And I love that because that is who we are. That is our calling. Priests unto the Lord. Keep that in mind because a priesthood that does not... Proclaim His Excellencies is a priesthood that gets all wonky and crooked. And that's where we begin tonight, back with the crooked priesthood in Israel in the days of Malachi, verse 6. The Lord says, "...a son honors his father, and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where is my respect?" says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. A crooked priesthood. A couple of things about this to note tonight. First we'll start with the crimes. The crimes of the crooked priesthood may recall that this is probably going on in the days of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah wrote in chapter 13, verse 29, Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. They have defiled. God says, you despise me. And he would know. Where's my honor? Where's, where's my respect? The word for honor, kabod in the Hebrew, glory. Where's my glory? The word for respect is morah, it means awe, it means fear. And it strikes me that there are three things that are due the Lord. Three things that we owe the Lord, that that He deserves from any one of us, and they form the necessary balance in the life of His people. Three things, love, glory, and fear. We are to love the Lord. We are to bring glory to the Lord, and we are to hold Him in the highest awe, in fear. And we get that out of balance sometimes. You know, we're called to a friendship with God, but we're also called to worship God, and we're called to a reverence for God. It's not either or, it's all three. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 the Lord says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might love him yes i can do that Deuteronomy 6:13 you shall fear only the Lord your God you shall worship him and swear by his name Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 now Israel what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to love him And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. What is your mentality when it comes to Jesus? I had a really interesting conversation on Sunday morning with a sister who was saying, you know, I've i hung out with Jesus for years, but I haven't been in church since I was 18. But I hang out with Him. You know, I I pray, I think about Him, and and I hang out with Him. Do you hang out with Jesus? Or do you hold him in awe? See, the reality is, it should be both. You should hang out with Jesus. That's not a bad thing. That he said, I I have called you friends, John 15, 15. For all the things I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. He says, that's what a friend does. So yes, I want a friendship relationship with you. I I want to be able to talk to you. To to be there in your difficult times. To hear your joys. And to share that with you. Friends with Jesus. But Jesus also said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If you're going to call me Lord, then it is required that you obey me. Now that's a whole different level, isn't it? Friend of God, yes! Servant of the Lord, worshiping Him in awe and fear before Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As the truth is, if we love Him, His commandments are not burdensome. They are a joy. Love, honor, friendship, fear, all these things were greatly lacking among these crooked priests. And it showed in their offerings. He says, you despise My name. They say, continuing on. But you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 7, you are presenting defiled food upon My altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Now understand, the table of the Lord, he mentions the table of the Lord here, it is not the table of showbread, the table of the Lord is the altar of sacrifice. The Lord's table is the altar. The brazen altar where all the sacrifices were made, where the blood was poured out, where the sacrifices were burned up. That's God's table. Ezekiel 41.22 Ezekiel saw in vision the altar was of wood three cubits high, its length two cubits, its corners its base and its sides were of wood. And he said to me, this is the table that is before the Lord. But on that table the priests were offering up lame, blind sick sheep. The lame, the blind, and the sick. These are the sheep that they're bringing. Well, what kind of sheep were they supposed to bring? Leviticus 22, verse 20 tells us, Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. For it will not be acceptable or accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a free will offering of the herd of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Do you know how hard it is to find an animal, a sheep, without a defect of any kind? There was already grace back in the old law because God said the animal has got to be absolutely 100% flawless. Or it cannot be offered. That's impossible. But he wanted them to try. He says in verse 22, those blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs... You shall not offer. Well, would you want that for barbecue? (laughs) Nor make any of them an offering by fire on the altar of the Lord. Deuteronomy 15.21. And these are just a couple of sample verses, gang. There's so many in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the law. Deuteronomy 15.21. If it has any defect, such as lameness or blindness, or any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. The food for the table of the Lord must be perfect. And the Lord goes on to give a practical example. He says in verse, at the latter part of verse 8, Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? So, so you invite Jay Ensley. <laughs> current governor of Washington you invite him to your house for dinner we're going to have a little dinner in your honor Jay and he shows up and you take him out and and you tell him hey on the menu rack of lamb you take him out in the backyard where you got a spit set up you Greeks and you take him out to see the lamb on the spit and there's a shriveled eyeball hanging out of the socket of the side of its head and a leg is completely missing Oozes from the belly, dripping down and sizzling in the fire, a rank odor of rotting meat rising all around in the air. I mean, how ridiculous! How might he respond? Wait, was this in my honor or are you a Republican?
1: <laughs>
0: what well, the question he might, might say. Now, listen, I'm being gross on purpose. The Lord is saying, Look, would you, sa- would you offer this as a meal to your governor? Would you invite someone from town? Would you take one of your leaders into your home and give them what you're giving to me at my table? Why did it have to be perfect? Because God did not offer a blind, a blind lame, or sickly son for our salvation. The body and blood of Jesus offered at the table of the Lord was perfect. By this... We will have been sanctified, Hebrews 10 verse 10 through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Hebrews 10:14, "For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Do you realize that I would not be able to be sacrificed for people? Well, obviously I'm a sinner, but that aside, I'm talking even physically. I have a birth defect. I was born with a defect. If I were a sheep with a cleft lip, sheep have cleft, don't they anyway? Kind of a split, I don't know. Anyway, if I was, I couldn't offer Rick. I'd be off scot-free. I'd be out romping in the field. Some of you all would be, you know, a little closer. Jesus was perfect. God was giving example. We've talked about this all the way through Leviticus when God set up the sacrificial system. Everything about it, every single sacrifice was a cameo of the Christ. And everything they were to do with the sacrifices and the way the sacrifices were offered and the expectation put on the people. But the priests in Malachi's day were so lackadaisical they weren't even checking for defect. It didn't matter. Oh, you got a blind sheep? That's alright. Stick it on the table. Somebody will eat it. Verse 9. But now, will you not entreat God's favor that He may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will He receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? What He's saying is, you're coming to Me for favor, but you're coming on your own terms of carelessness. You're coming at me with scant offerings and asking me to bless you. You're asking for my favor. And the Lord is put off. And here's the thing. The offerings themselves were not the main issue. The offerings are never the main issue with the Lord. It's what they represented. They represented a lack of love on the part of the people. And especially on the part of the priesthood. They represented priests who could care less about the expectation of their God. The Lord's never concerned with the actual offering. He was always concerned with the heart behind it. But the truth is, the heart behind the offering should be seen in the offering. If the offering is lame, if it's blind, well then it's not really coming from a heart that that truly wants to bless the Lord. The offering just reflects the heart. Genesis chapter 4, the very first offering we read of in Scripture. Abel brought his best, the best of his flock, and offered it before the Lord. Cain brought a fruit basket. And it's not that God doesn't like fruit. It was the heart behind the offering that matters. I, I really, I've wondered about this because God hadn't set up the sacrificial system yet. He hadn't explained what he was looking for. We just know that the heart of Abel was right. What's the best I've got that I can bring to the Lord? And Cain's over there going, a couple of bananas and orange and maybe a pear. And I don't like pears myself. But he just throws them, and obviously the heart was wrong in approaching the Lord. The heart affects the offering. The heart behind the gift. I never re gift Cheryl at Christmas. It's just not something I do. And husbands I would recommend against it. Probably not a good idea to give her something that you've already, you know, it's been sitting on your counter and you re wrap it. <laughs> because it was Christmas Eve and you didn't have time. You know what I'm saying? Kathy, help me. Uh, <laughs> I give Cheryl the best I can give, and it may not be the best gift in the world, and it may not be the most expensive, and it may not be the largest number of gifts, but I give her what I can. I give her, when it comes to all my children and and the Christmas gifts in our house, I always spend more on Cheryl. Why? Because she's the love of my life, and my heart reflects that. I won't tell you who I spend the least on.
1: the heart behind
0: the offering that we're getting at here. And you can't play pretense with God. He knows what's in the heart. And as a matter of fact, someone could bring the best of the sheep of his flock and have a wrong heart and have that rejected. But they weren't even doing that. They were bringing the leftovers to the table of the Lord. The Lord said in Isaiah 1.11, What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. See, the problem then was the people thought they could glut the Lord with all kinds of sacrifice and hide their sin. Well, now their sin's just kind of hanging out. And it's reflecting in what they're giving. Man, I'm so glad when we come to the table of the Lord, it is set with the body and blood of Jesus. See, that's what the Lord offers us. The best that He had to give His only begotten Son. When we recognize what He's done, when we come to the table of the Lord, as we do representationally every Sunday when we take communion, we come to that table. And and perhaps this can alter our view a little bit. To realize that the table of the Lord is the altar of sacrifice. Sacrifice. When we come to that altar on Sunday morning, it is the altar of sacrifice where Jesus was sacrificed on our behalf. We representationally take of the bread and the wine. And it represents that to us. The best of the best that God had to offer for His people. We could never have done it. Peter says we were redeemed with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has, has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Verse 10, the Lord continues, O oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates... That you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. Now here's a sobering thought. The Lord would just as soon soon shut down the temple or board up a church as have people bringing blind, sick, and lame offerings. Close the doors, man, if this is what you're going to do. Shut the gate. No more of this. Now, someone might say, but didn't Jesus heal the blind and the sick and the lame? Didn't He call them to Him? Yes, so that He could heal them. So, in our case, yeah, we want to bring the blind and the lame and the sick to the Lord. Blind people. Lame people with no faith, those who are sick and tired of this life, we want to bring them to the altar of the Lord where they can receive the offering of Jesus Christ and they can be healed. But to offer up the pathetic and the scant and the no good. There's a clear warning I think here for any church that brings heartless offerings to the Lord. Shut the gates shut the doors walk it up if the day ever came and I don't believe it will but if the day ever came where the Bridge Christian Fellowship was more interested in itself than it was about saving lost people then it would be time to shut the gates and to board up the windows and to go find a church that's actually doing the work of the Lord Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 God said to Ephesus I have this against you You've left your first love, Jesus said. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Guess what? God did that twice with Israel. 586 B.C., He removed the lampstand. In 70 A.D., He removed Israel's lampstand right out of its temple. As a matter of fact, you can see a carving of it on the Arch of Titus in Rome. Do you know that? If you ever are in Rome, go to the Arch of Titus or just Google it. You can find it at home tonight. On the Arch of Titus, there is carved the Romans marching and they are carrying a massive menorah. That it symbolizes Titus' return to Rome in glory after wiping out Jerusalem. God removed the lampstand from Israel and it has not burned since. No temple. No appropriate worship for the Jewish people. No lampstand, no light. And I'll say again, God will do it here on Troxel Road if we lose heart. He will remove the lampstand. The lampstand that the, the Word of God represents as the Holy Spirit. His Spirit in us and among us. And if we don't respond to Him recognizing the offering, recognizing the sacrifice of Jesus, living lives, a royal priesthood, he'll remove the lampstand. He will give it to another church that is intent on following his will and doing it his way. Again, I don't see that happening. But we need to be aware of that. If we lose heart, what is it that that makes people lose heart? I've wondered that over the years. I've wondered from church to church to church and I've served in several different churches, grew up in a different church and, and I, I've wondered over the years what is it that makes some churches just shrivel and die or land in a certain place and just kind of level out and never really change, never really grow, never really affect other. But what is it about that? And I think it's just churches lose heart because people lose heart. I mean what makes for lame offerings? What makes for sickly giving in a church body? People lose heart. Life gets hard. The paycheck shrinks. The bills go up. Despair and pain and struggle settle in. You know what Paul said? He said in 2 Corinthians 4.16, We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, (laughs) yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. I got a new license, driver's license this week. Had to renew it. That's all kinds of fun. Because you know the DMV takes the best pictures. (laughs) And I put the old license, which is only a decade old, I set it down and put the new license beside it. I'm like, Cheryl, do you see what's happened? Do you see what these people have done to me? (laughs) Our outer man is decaying, you know? We, We are not what we were. Our inner man, however, is being renewed day by day. And I would rather be the person I am now, this inner man, than I was 10 years ago. Far more joyful. I'm far more excited about what the Lord's doing. I didn't even have a clue a decade ago. And so our inner man's being renewed. We do not lose heart. Momentary light affliction, it's producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Man, if your life is hard, praise the Lord. He's working on you. He's sanctifying you. He's going to glorify you. And when glory comes, I'll tell you what, for those who have had a hard 40, 50, 70 years of life, when glory comes, you're going to enjoy it more than any of us. You're going to come into glory and go,
1: Yes!
0: You know, there are some of us like me who are pretty glorious anyway, who when we come into glory... No, when we come into glory, there are some who are going to go, yes, I think we're all going to be thrilled. But I wonder if there won't be a few that are more thrilled because life was so hard and glory is so good. And that's what's going on. God is producing it. He says, we don't look at things which are seen. We look at things which are not seen. For that which is seen is temporary but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's your, there's your key. We don't lose heart. How do we not lose heart? We keep our eyes on the eternal. We don't look at this. We don't worry about this. We do what we have to do, and we do what God's called us to do, but our eyes are on the coming kingdom and on eternity, and we don't lose heart. And I have found when my eyes are on the kingdom, I'm never heartless. I get heartless when I start to look in at my own heart. When I start to go inward. Look at eternity. Man, it always lifts up the eyes. By the way, even when the Lord shuts the doors in one place as He did with the temple, His name continues to spread. His name continues to be magnified. If we don't do the job, someone else will and He will find the person who will do it. Look at verse 11 for from the rising of the sun even to its setting my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations says the Lord of hosts and this is a prevailing promise of the coming kingdom everywhere from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same my name is going to be praised And there will be incense offered as prayer. And there will be grain offerings. People will be worshiping me worldwide. And that's the kingdom. And God says, You can be part of it and keep that lamp lit. Or you can deny it and I will remove the lampstand from you. It's up to us. Verse 12. But you are profaning it. That is His name. In that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, My, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it that sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. In these few verses, there are four accumulative bad attitudes among the priests at that time and God calls them on it and the first one is there in verse 13 at the beginning of the verse where you also say my how tiresome it is the priests were getting sluggish they were sluggish in the work instead of recognizing the glory of their high holy calling they were bored they were half-hearted they were weary of the work how tiresome it is. I've shared with you before, Dwight L. Moody once said, I become weary in the work, but never weary of the work. I can relate to that. Yes, I get tired. Yes, there are long weeks in ministry. I get it. But I tell you what, if I'm tired of it, I ought to stop doing it. I weary in it, But I never weary of it, and again, Paul says, we do not lose heart. Let me encourage you. Don't lose heart when you're serving in some ministry here at the bridge, and someone else serving in the ministry does it a way that you don't like. Don't lose heart. Don't pull out and say, well, fine, I'll just let you do it. I'll just go do my own thing then. If that's the way it's gonna be, don't don't lose heart. Keep serving. Don't give up. And not for me, and not for the leadership of the church, but for the Lord. Don't lose heart. Don't get tired of the work. It's His work. And it is a high, holy calling, royal priesthood. But they were sluggish in the work. Secondly, they were sniffing at the work. I like this one. It says you sniff at it. What in the world does that mean? You disdainfully sniff at it. Disdainfully sniff. It's one word in the Hebrew. It's napach. Napach. It kind of sounds like...
1: <laughs>
0: napach means to blow your nose at. Hey, uh, can you be sure to refill the lampstand? Sniff. <laughs> Whose turn is it to replace the, sn- the, the showbread Snort. Who cleaned these offering pans last sneer? That's what the word means. You ever do that on the job? I'm not talking about in church, but perhaps at work, it becomes mundane, and you get kind of sluggish, and the next thing you know, the boss calls and says, hey, can you come in a half hour early on Monday? I really need you to do a little extra work. And you go, pshh. And I'm sure none of you have ever had that experience. But the priests of the Lord in the temple of the Lord were sluggish and they're sniffing. And thirdly, they're stealing from the boss. The priesthood had become Kleenex to them. And now they're stealing from the boss. You bring what was taken by robbery, what is lame or sick, so you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand? The Lord says in allowing the people to bring subpar heartless offerings, the priests were robbing the boss. Robbing God of what? The honor and the glory that was due His name. They were ripping off the Lord. He should get the best of the best of the best that Israel had to offer, but because the priests didn't really care, God was being stolen from his glory was not being given as it was due. Sluggish in the work, sniffing at the work, stealing from the boss, and finally swindling the Lord. And that's amazing in verse 14. Curse be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. In other words, he's on his way up to Jerusalem. He's got the best of his flock. He's vowed, I'm going to go give this wonderful, glorious sheep. And halfway there he goes, You know what? I like this sheep. And This one is not going to be any good to me anyway because he's lame. I'll offer this. The Bible says, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Psalm 76 verse 11. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. But the priests in Malachi's day are sluggish, sniffing, stealing, and swindling. (laughs) No wonder God shut the gates. Nevertheless, the Lord does say, My name is feared among the nations. And I like that because it reminds me, there are always those who fear the Lord. There are always those who love Jesus. There has never been a time since the resurrection, since the ascension of Christ, there has never been a time where there have not been a people on earth who loved Jesus Christ. And there will never be a time when there aren't. There are always those who love the Lord. Sometimes we don't see them. We're like Elijah in the cave. You know, we've run from Jezebel. Everything looks terrible. We just killed 400 prophets of Baal. Forget that. One woman's mad at us and we're all falling apart. <laughs> and what did the Lord say to Elijah? I have a remnant in Israel. You're not the last prophet, dude. Thinking a little highly of yourself there, Elijah. No, I've got a remnant. There are always people who love the Lord. My name is always feared among the nations. Always have been, always will be those who understand that the high priestly magnification of God's name is the point. And by the way, God's not asking for it. It just is what it is. You realize that when He says magnify my name, He's not saying, Oh, I really need you to make me feel better about myself. He's saying, I want you to declare what is true. And that is, I'm glorious. I want you to magnify my name because my name is magnified. I want you in line with that. I want you understanding it and getting it. Now, now we move on in in chapter 2. From the crimes of the crooked priesthood to the curse of the crooked priesthood. Verse 1. And now this commandment is for you, O priests, if you do not listen... And if you do not take it to heart to give honor to My name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and watch this, I will curse your blessings and indeed I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. God says I will curse your blessings. What does this mean? It means the Levites would be defrocked. They're going to be defrocked as priests. Let me explain. The highest office in the land of Israel was the priesthood. It wasn't the king. The king was ruler, but the king's office was not the highest office. The priesthood was. The high priest would be higher than the king because the high priest stood as the mediator between man and God. The king had to go through the high priest to get to the Lord. The priesthood was the mediatorial office, if you will, between mankind and God, God and mankind, at least until Messiah came. And of course you know with Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Which is why we don't have a priesthood at the bridge. Because there's only one high priest, just one, Jesus Christ. There is no other priesthood. There is no other mediator between us and the Father. And so royal priesthood, understand, we go through Jesus to the Father. But the Levites were the original mediators. And they were the mediators, get this, they were the mediators of God's blessing to Israel. we got to read this right. When the Lord says, I will curse your blessings, He's not saying, I'm going to take all the good stuff that you have in your houses and in your farms and whatever and wipe it out. That's not what He's saying. I'm going to curse your Blessings. Well, what were their blessings? Numbers chapter 6, verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace, so they shall invoke My name on the sons of Israel and I will bless them. And now, the priesthood's blessing is cursed. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying they will no longer be able to bless the people with the name of the Lord. Their whole purpose, secondarily to magnifying the Lord, was to bless the people. And God's saying, I'm cursing that. I'm drawing a line in the sand. You will no longer be able to offer up that invocation of blessing The high priestly blessing of number six, not only would their own blessings be cursed, but their ability to bless the people would be cursed as well, defrocked. This is why the priestly role is so serious. This is why God is so heavy on the priests at this point in Israel's history. Because it literally, what the priest did literally impacted the people. Their ability to bless is now ruined by their own crookedness. They would not be able to bless the people. So they're defraught of blessing. And secondly, and this is going to blow your minds, but the Levites would be defaced. Look at verse 3. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offering, and I will spread refuse on your faces, and uh, the refuse of your feasts, and you will be taken away with it. And yes, the word refuse is what you think it is. I'm going to spread refuse on your face. Do you understand what he's saying? I think it's the King James that translates it excrement, and it's right. And I read that, and I went, okay, no, refuse has got to be just like dirt clods. No. No, it's refuse. Why would the Lord God use such a crude description? Because he's reflecting the filthy leftovers of the sacrificial offerings the refuse if you will of the offerings which does include the excrement of the animals whatever was inside the animals what was in the bowels what was all you know all that mess listen to this exodus 29:14 but the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse you shall burn with fire outside the camp it's a sin offering The meat was to be offered on the altar. But all that refuse, all the leftover goo (laughs) of the animals, you take it outside the camp because it's it's filth. And that's the picture. God says, I'm going to spread that on your faces. I will deface you, my priesthood. Because that's what He thinks of their priestly offerings, of their priestly service. The refuse of their vile offerings was all over their faces. Their feasts, rather than resulting in worship and praise and magnification of God, their feasts would result in waste. But here's what's marvelous. In dealing with this crooked, messed up priesthood, and all these things, he's now pointed out their crimes, he's laid out the curses, and yet God is not through with the Levites. Even today. In the same way he is not through with the Jew, he is not through with Levi. Verse 4, then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. The Levites are going to be refrocked, if you will. I'm sure that's a word. Reinstated. The Lord promises to reinstate, get this, the Levitical priesthood in the Millennial Kingdom. Where do you get that? Ezekiel 44, verse 10. The Levites who went far from Me when Israel went astray, who went astray from Me after their idols, shall bear the punishment of their iniquity. That's what He's talking about. Yet, they shall be ministers in My sanctuary. Having oversight at the gates of the house and ministering in the house, they shall slaughter the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Ezekiel is describing the kingdom. God says, I'm going to reinstate my priesthood. I'm doing this with Levi now. I am cursing them now. I am punishing them now because then I want my covenant to continue with them. What a gracious God! You know, we fire someone, we boot them out, and we are done with them. God disciplines as a father disciplines a son. And that's what He's doing here with Levi. And it's by His choice, it's by His election, it's by His favor. Verse 5, He says, My covenant with Him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to Him as an object of reverence, and so He revered Me. And He stood in awe of My name. Verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. Now, from that point in history, I believe God is talking about someone looking back and he's talking about someone looking forward. He's talking about this, this priest who received a covenant of life and peace because he revered him and he stood in awe of his name a priest through whom true instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips and he walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity well that's Jesus looking forward but there's someone looking back too that I think the Lord may be alluding to here especially because he mentions a, a covenant of life and peace Numbers 25 tells the story of an Israelite named Zimri and a Midianite girl named Cosby. You know, normally I would make a joke there. (laughs) i got to say something about this. Just because it's what I do. This whole thing with Bill Cosby that's been going on, isn't it sad? And I don't know what the truth is, and I'm not one to stand up and defend any more than I would be one to, to, you know, condemn. I don't know any more than any of us do. But man, it's it's just it's so sad. The Cosby Show of the '80s, great show. You know, he was called, has been recently even called America's Dad. Now I'm completely off topic here, but but let me just say this one thing. America doesn't need a dad. America needs a father. And that's what's lacking in our country. And the celebrities and the leaders and the pastors and those who are... Anyone. They're going to let us down. They're going to disappoint us. I pray constantly as a pastor that I won't let this fellowship down. But I know I've already let some of you down. I know I've already disappointed some of you. I know I've already offended one or two here and there and it happens. I get that. But to put our hope and our faith and our trust in human beings is just foolish. We need a father. So, back to it. Zimri and Cosby. (laughs) This Israelite and this Midianite woman, they brazenly enter Zimri's tent right in front of Moses and all the leaders of Israel. Because at that time, the sons of Israel were going out with the daughters of Moab and they were coming in together and they were intermarrying and it brought a plague on the people and it was bad time for Moses and the people of Israel. And the Zimri does this, it's brazen. Well, there was a priest sitting there of the Aaronic priesthood, the Lion of Aaron, a man by the name of Phineas. I love the story. He jumps up. He sees this take place. He grabs his spear and he hightails it into the tent after them. And next thing you know, sin on a stick. (laughs) He drives the spear through both of them. Sin (laughs) kebab. And he checked the plague that was on Israel that very day. 24,000 Israelites were dead by plague because they were sinning against the Lord until Phineas stopped it. I love Phineas. And we're told in Numbers 25.11, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement <laughs> atonement for the sons of Israel. And we need more of that today. Not people driving other people through with a spear. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But we do need people who are not afraid to take up the sword of the Word and to spear sin in this society. We need people who are not afraid to speak the truth of God's Word, to stand by the truth of His Word and to say, that's wrong. What's wrong is wrong, and what's right is right. What is sin is sin. You can cast it any way you want it, but it's still sin. And the sword of the Word, gang, it does pierce. And there are those it offends as it goes in. And those it cuts. And those it heals. Surgically. And we need that. We need the Phineases who have that kind of passion to honor God over man. Interesting, Moses was sitting there. Not even Moses jumped up and grabbed a spear. Phineas did he was the only one in all Israel who loved God enough to say, I, I know that God is absolutely beside Himself with anger over this. And I stand with my God. I do not stand with my culture. And when my people go against my God, I stand with my God. That's the right attitude, royal priesthood. He stands strong with the, the God of our, of our salvation. Unlike the priests of Malachi's day, man, Phineas had a passion for God. And his actions saved countless thousands of Israelites by checking a plague that had already taken place. And so he was promised life and peace. Thankfully today, we have the same covenant promise of life and peace through Jesus Christ. You may recall this. Zechariah 6.13 He will be a priest on His throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He paid for it. He took the spear that we might have peace. And Jesus said in John 16.33 These things I have spoken unto you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation take courage I've overcome the world by the way Phineas had a covenant of life and peace and the rest of his life he would have peace that no one else had and they were turbulent times in which Phineas lived the times were not easier but Phineas had a peace like nobody else because of a covenant with the Lord And I believe he's being referred to here when he talks about this, reaches back to this priest who had a covenant with the Lord of life and peace. Now verse 8 going on. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way, you have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing, note this, partiality in the instruction. What's that mean? What is is partiality in the instruction? Literally, and probably a better translation is, you are showing partial instruction. Partial instruction. The priests were only teaching those things that suited them. They were only offering the truth of the law that they themselves were comfortable with. Not the tough stuff. Not the demands. Not the challenges. Not the convicting things. No, don't mess with that. You don't want to teach that stuff. People won't come to church. So you need to shy away from that. You need to to drive around it. You know what? I have two options for Sunday morning's teaching. And I'm praying about which way to go. Marriage and divorce or money? (laughs) It's going to be a fun morning. (laughs) Or just shy away from it. Skip around it and talk about John the Baptist. I could do that. Partial instruction can be more damning than no instruction at all. Because it never gets you there. Jeremiah 23.22 The Lord says, If they had stood in My counsel... Then they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds, if they had declared God's counsel. But it was partial instruction. Acts twenty twenty seven, Paul says, "I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, the whole counsel of the Word of God." Paul could claim that I taught you everything that I can teach you from the Word. Partial instruction is as dangerous as no instruction is at all better. Shut down the church. Close the doors. Shut the gates. By the way, I think partial instruction has another name, ear tickling. For the time will come, 2 Timothy 4.3, when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled... They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know that glorious feeling when your ear has an itch kind of like just on the inside and you stick your finger in there as far as you can and you just start to work it? I could do that like for half an hour you know when I've got the itch it's just like oh yeah you and my my leg starts kicking kind of like a dog oh that's good that's good (laughs) and tragically tragically it happens in churches people sitting there going oh that's a good word pastor that's a good word so glad he, he skipped the whole part about money (laughs) glad he's not talking about marriage and divorce because that would be uncomfortable but yeah John the Baptist yay! (laughs) (laughs) when the teachers and the people meet in the place of partial instruction the end result is everything gets crooked and we are not called to be a crooked priesthood Remember this crooked line of Levi resulted in the divisive and carnal companies of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's where this is going. So we can, with the, with the instruction of history, we can look back and see the priests were corrupt, the priests were crooked, and watch how they divided into different camps and warring factions within Israel, both thinking they were better than the other. And Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. The Kishé Moshe. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say and do not do. See, that's the next logical step. Partial instruction, and then teaching everything, just not doing it yourself. If the rabbi is crooked, so goes the teaching. That's why James warns, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. The Lord needs teachers. Some of you are being called to be teachers. Leading in small groups. Teaching in Bible studies. Just don't do it without serious prayer. Don't do it without calling. Don't do it without thinking it through. God needs teachers who are willing to teach the whole counsel of the Word of God. Who are willing, even like Phinehas, to pick up the sword of the Spirit and drive it home when it needs to be inserted. So the Lord's angry with the priests, that's obvious. Primarily because they have corrupted the covenant of Levi, which was again the covenant of life and peace. That's God's desire. That's what he wants, life and peace, not death and chaos. And yet Israel over the last 2,000 years has experienced constant death and chaos. The Knesset is all chaotic again. I don't know if you read that today. That uh, the uh, government in Israel, the parliament is going to be dissolved and they're going to have to have new elections and kind of go back around and try and make it work. And it's it's pretty wild the way the, the uh, Israeli government works. But that's just a small picture of the death and the chaos that has been Israel's plight for 2,000 years when they could have had life and peace. And the Lord places it squarely on the shoulders of the priesthood. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. So let me end with this. What is it that helps a priesthood remain holy? What keeps a priesthood, a royal priesthood, you and me, what's going to keep us straight and true as opposed to crooked and out of joint? Let me give you a list. You can jot these down or I can give them to you later or whatever. But a real quick list that I just wrote down after, after I was through this part of the study. And we're going to stop here tonight because it goes on into the next section, God's Concerns with Marriage. But I realized this, that as a royal priesthood, as a royal priest myself called to be one of God's, what it is that, that helps me, there are, there are tools here to keep a straight line. The royal priest of the Lord, number one, magnifies the Lord beyond the borders of his life or her church. That's A number one. To be a priest of the Lord is to magnify the Lord beyond yourself, beyond your needs, beyond your desires, beyond your borders. Secondly, the royal priest loves, honors, and fears the Lord. You know the friendship we were talking about? Friendship with Jesus... And yet, deep respect and awe and worship of Jesus and keeping the commandments of Christ. It's all part of the deal. The royal priest loves, honors, and fears the Lord. Number three. The royal priest offers only his best to the Lord. Not the leftovers. If we do talk about money on Sunday... Consider that when you think about your giving. And I can say that freely because I have no idea what anybody in this fellowship gives. And if I talk about Monday, I'll say that again so everybody understands that. Think about what you bring to the Lord. Is it your first fruits? Is it the best? And that's just one area, obviously. There are plenty of other areas, and I won't get all into that. But the royal priest offers his best to the Lord because... The royal priest, number four, recognizes the sacrifice of Jesus at the table of the Lord. See, it's really hard to eat and drink condemnation on yourself as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. It's real hard to do that when you come to the table of the Lord recognizing the depth of His sacrifice. What He really did to give us salvation. So the royal priest magnifies the Lord. He loves, honors, and fears the Lord. He offers only his best to the Lord because he recognizes the sacrifice of Jesus at the table of the Lord. Number five, the royal priest does not lose heart because his eyes are on eternity. Number six, and if you're furiously jotting these down, I can can give them to you later too. Number six, the royal priest is not a sluggard a sniffer, a stealer, or a swindler. These things do not describe those who are called to the royal priesthood. Oh, honey, I'm just, let's just sleep in this morning. I'm, I'm tired at church. Well, whose fault is that? Don't blame me. I'm just a messenger. Number seven. The royal priest of the Lord seeks to be a blessing to the people desires to bless the people and therefore does not want the the opportunity the the ability to bless others you don't want that curse you want that ability you want that gift from the Lord to be a blessing to other people number 8 couple more here the royal priest takes up the sword of the word with passion jealous for his God or her God Number nine, the royal priest lives out the promise of life and peace. See, someone who's really in line with the Lord is not stressed and freaking out and upset and worried, by the way, when death comes knocking. Leslie and I were talking about it. Please pray for Bernadette Fernandez. Pray for Bernadette. She's found out that she has cancer. Uh, Danny and Bernadette are over in Hawaii, dear brothers and sisters, from days, days previous here at the bridge. And she is amazing. Because she is just saying, you know, my faith, my trust, they are in the Lord. I have watched people with faith go through cancer, even cancer unto death. I have watched people without faith go through cancer, and it is night and day. And you know what? The royal priest, I'm living out my promise of life and peace. And if God should tell me tomorrow, Rick, you've got cancer and you've got six months, praise the Lord, thank you for 50 years and six months. I've been here as long as God planned for me to be here. Life and peace. And finally, number 10, the royal priest instructs with impartiality the whole counsel of God. We do not shy away from any aspect of of the Word of God. We put it out there and let it be what it is. And then each of us have to go home and chew on this and consider it and ponder it and and, and seek the Lord on it. All those things sound an awful lot like Jesus to me. And with Jesus, with Christ in me, this is my calling. And that's the key, by the way, ultimately to a priesthood of believers. It's not keeping the ten things on the list. The key is Hebrews 3.1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is the apostle and high priest of our confession. You just keep your eyes on him and all these things will begin to fall into place. One last thing I'll add and then we'll finish. If you want to throw this on to the end of the list, it would be number eleven, which is a weird number, but I don't really care. Number eleven, the priest lives first and foremost to magnify the Father. It's interesting because right here Malachi jumps back in, in the midst of God proclaiming all of this, the messenger inserts a little something. He says right at the beginning of verse ten, "Do we not all have one Father?" Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Malachi is spot on. We have one Father. And he's all of our Father. And so our life calling is for the Father. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, by whom... by whom or from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Royal priesthood, that's how we stay straight in our calling. We exist for Him, and we exist through Him. That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be magnified. And Father, we praise your name tonight and we lift up and bless the name of Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that somehow, way, by your might and power and authority, that tomorrow our lives would be seen as magnifying you. I pray, Father, in the home, in the workplace, in, in marriages, in relationships, in families, in the marketplace, wherever we are, Lord, remind us of these things and, and cause us to live our lives in such a way that we will magnify our God and Father, and we will simply be seen as Your people. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.